Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey listeners, it's Jenny. This season on Women Belong in the House, we're diving into the caregiving economy. We know that there's a lot to unpack with all of these issues. So each week, we're going to share with you an episode from the latest season of White Picket Fence to bring you the history and context you need to really understand where we are today. Tune in on Tuesday for the first episode of a brand new season of Women Belong in the House. Enjoy! In 1947, 39 men walked into a room in a hotel in Switzerland. These men, well, they were concerned. World War II had just ended. Totalitarianism was on the rise in the Soviet Union. The U.S., meanwhile, was coming out of the New Deal era and its expansion of the nation's social safety net. These 39 men were economists, public intellectuals. They weren't exactly household names, but a few have become well-known. Milton Freeman was there. So was Friedrich Hayek. And from their bird's-eye view, these men saw socialism creeping across the globe. On its way, they thought, to strangle liberalism and liberty. So these 39 men, 38 of whom were white, laid out an economic strategy that would fight against the state. They called it neoliberalism. And for the last 40 years, it's been economic gospel in the United States. I'm Julie Kohler, and this is White Picket Fence. This season, we're exploring our country's caregiving crisis and the ideologies about race, gender, families, the economy, and yes, white women, that have blocked public investments in care and led us to a point where so many of us are cracking. We started this season with a question. Why does it have to be this way? So far, we've interrogated a number of beliefs. But how did they become so politically powerful? Because they were knitted together by, you guessed it, neoliberalism. Now, I know the idea of an entire episode about economics might sound a little dry. But here's the thing about neoliberalism. It's a paradigm, which is to say it's a set of ideas that governs the way we think the world works. It dictates what we think is normal, what we think of as right and wrong. Neoliberalism has been doing this for decades. It's been playing in the background, shaping our reality, sometimes without us really noticing. Successful paradigms are always so invisible that we don't really know we're living in them. You know, it's kind of like the fish in the bowl of water doesn't know that it's in the bowl of water until it suddenly finds itself outside the bowl of water gasping for air. That's Felicia Wong. She runs the Roosevelt Institute, a progressive economic think tank. 
Felicia is a leading thinker on how to construct a different kind of economy, one that is more inclusive, fair, equitable. In order to imagine what's possible, what could be different, we need to first understand our current reality. So Felicia is going to be something of an economic translator today, helping tell the story of neoliberalism. So, to start, let's go back to that room, in that hotel, in Switzerland. These men called themselves the Montpellerin Society. They sounded the alarm about big government, trade unions, the welfare state. And they took those ideas back to the university economics departments and think tanks where many of them worked. Fueled by anti-Soviet fervor, the ideas of the movement spread beyond to American society writ large. This is the Kremlin, citadel of Russian communism. Russia today is regarded as a grave threat to our nation, to our freedom, to the peace of the crusade for freedom is your chance and mine to fight communism. Join now by sending your contributions to General Clay. Crusade for Freedom, Empire State. Freedom to own property and to worship God in your own way. It is these freedoms that have made America strong. Working together to produce an ever greater abundance of material and spiritual values for all. That is the secret of American prosperity. Neoliberalism sees the free market as sacred. It can solve all of society's problems through the private sector if we would only leave it alone. That faith and disdain for expansive government created alliances that were unexpected. So neoliberalism brought together libertarian economists with, you know, social conservatives, evangelical pastors, suburban moms. Um, and so neoliberalism is not only conservative economics, you know, small government, private sector, you know, on steroids, but it is also this idea that privatizing things is going to lead to a better society. Neoliberalism isn't just an economic theory. It's a political one. And all these forces came together politically in the transformational decade that we talked about in the last episode, the 1970s. By the 1960s and the 1970s, you started to see lots of Americans continue to worry about you know, the Soviet Union, this was the height of the Cold War. And so you saw lots of suburban moms uh, support, for example, the presidential campaign of Barry Goldwater in the 1960s. He presented himself as the bulwark of sort of anti-Soviet America. You started to also see executives at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce be really worried about radicalism on our college campuses. They were worried about the free speech movement. They were worried about lots of things that they thought were going to deprive free enterprise of literally its freedom. And you also started to see a kind of nascent but growing, you know, social conservative evangelicalism. Um, this was especially in kind of California and the Southwest. You know, some of the new evangelical churches began to crop up um, in the 1970s. 
these are kind of strange bedfellows, right? Libertarian economists, new suburban homeowners, evangelical pastors, business executives. But what held all of them together was this core neoliberal idea that the state should be small. The state shouldn't intervene with the kinds of decisions business would make. The state should not intervene in decisions about the family. Only the nuclear family should make decisions in a way that was very privatized. And so this idea about a small state led to a kind of supercharging of the private sector in ways that um, I think made neoliberalism kind of seep into the water um, of American politics. Libertarians, evangelical Christians, white suburban mothers, all of them got on board with this idea of privatization, whether it had to do with the government, economic markets, or families. And around 1980, these forces united, due in part to some powerful emerging political leaders, like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. And prosperity won't come by inventing more and more lavish public expenditure programs. The answer to a government that's too big is to stop feeding its growth. Government spending has been growing faster than the economy itself. You don't grow richer by ordering another checkbook from the bank. And no nation ever grew more prosperous by taxing its citizens beyond their capacity to pay. But this was the idea that the state shouldn't tax you because you, you, the private homeowner, the private citizen, you know, that was your money to spend. Um, and so the, the low taxes part of neoliberalism really developed it began in the 1970s as sort of an anti-property tax movement. But by the 1980s, it became part and parcel of what many politicians, including predominantly Ronald Reagan, argued for at the center of his you know, presidential campaign. Sure, for some folks, low taxes and small government was appealing. But according to Felicia, neoliberalism as a political philosophy represented much more than that. But I think one of the secrets of neoliberalism is that at its heart, it isn't really technocratic, right? It isn't really about tax rates per se. I think neoliberalism really speaks in a language that's rooted in moral values and a vision for society. It did make this central moral claim for economic liberty. And I think that that is essential to its popular appeal. You know, early on, the Mont Pelerin men, uh, the, you know, Hayek and Friedman made um, an argument that freedom was centered on an individual's right to do what he wanted in the marketplace, right? To make a contract, to own his own property. This idea of economic liberty uh, for neoliberals was a precondition of all other political freedoms. Um, and so this idea, you know, it is my right to own my own property and defend it. It is my right to contract only with the people I want to for what should happen to that property. Um, that is 
that was really appealing to a lot of people. I think it's really important to point out that this is not the only way to conceptualize freedom, right? Uh, you could think about the freedom of the abolition movement against slavery in the 1850s and 60s. You could think about women's liberation. That also is about liberation and liberty, and that's a very different conception of freedom than the freedom to contract in a marketplace. What's so remarkable to me is that this idea of economic liberty as the basis of freedom for generations, certainly since, you know, the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, that idea dominated everyday thinking in American political life to an astonishing degree. And maybe that is the secret to, you know, neoliberalism's paradigmatic hold on what we think life ought to look like. Why was this idea of freedom so compelling? Felicia has a theory on that, too. One that has a lot to do with race. Or as Dorian talked about in our last episode, the question of who belongs in society. It's so important because I think that it's why I often say that neoliberalism is not just economic, but is really about who gains and who loses or who's in or who's out of our social order. And neoliberalism really is profoundly about not just men, but in particular, white men being able to earn a wage. So some of the history that I think about in the 1960s and 1970s that show not just the gendered, but also the racialized ways in which neoliberalism came to power, um, as follows. You know, I think it's important to remember that the 1960s and 1970s were incredibly, incredibly tumultuous and even violent. There was the Vietnam War, police killing student protesters at Kent State and Jackson State in the same year. There was massive racial suppression and police brutality that gave rise to the Watts Uprising in 1965 and the Detroit Rebellion in 1967. And, of course, the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. Basically, this reflected a kind of changing racial order where Black people were demanding community control, community control of their schools, community control of their economies, because the status quo was just not working for them. This was also at a time when the Supreme Court was demanding or trying to demand um, desegregation of American schools, was trying to demand desegregation of American neighborhoods and housing. You had the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964 uh, you had the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. So there is this changing racial order at the same time that you have uh, just a tremendous amount of social upheaval. And what you see out of all of that is white flight, white residents leaving neighborhoods because they didn't want to live next to Black Americans. So you had housing desegregation driving white flight. 
You have school desegregation and efforts to bus kids to integrated schools, leading to massive resistance. It's literally called massive resistance, like capital M, capital R, throughout the South. You know, Virginia's elected officials actually closed schools for five years rather than integrating them. You had the famous violent resistance to racial integration of schools um, in Boston, in New York. So all of this upheaval kind of makes it feel like American democracy, any kind of public answers to public problems aren't very viable. And it kind of makes it feel that way to white Americans in particular. I think black Americans felt quite differently. But what you end up with is neoliberalism is kind of a neat answer to all of that, right? Neoliberalism says, well, if you just give power to the private sector, to the free enterprise system, to businessmen who kind of know what they're doing because they can keep a profit and loss sheet, you'll actually see social order. You'll not only see like economic growth and wages that, you know, come in every two weeks with a paycheck, but you'll also see a kind of social order. And so I think that one of the things that neoliberalism's economic ideas represented was a promise of neatness, a promise of, en of an end to chaos. But what, what that promise really hid was a racialized and gendered order of, frankly, economic and social exclusion and oppression. And so that is not too far beneath the surface of um, this idea that the private sector could be the answer to our problems. Framing neoliberalism as true freedom hides its larger goal, to maintain social order, a social order that a lot of conservatives support. But we're talking about childcare. What does any of this have to do with kids? One of the important things about this conception of neoliberalism as it developed in the 60s and 70s was that it really valorized the private, right? It valorized what private people, the private sector, private business, and importantly, the private nuclear family can and should do. Um, and I think there were really two trends at the same time that are worth looking at in the 60s and 70s that left out the vision of care that I think you and many of us um, hold today. But the first trend, you know, was, again, is this idea that Milton Friedman popularized in a very famous uh, New York Times magazine piece uh, in 1971 where he argued that the purpose of business is profit, not creating social value, not creating social responsibility, but the purpose of business is profit and profit alone. And essentially what he was arguing was that if you attended to business first, all of those other things, including care, care in your community, you know, would sort of take care of themselves but he was really pretty silent on those issues because he was so focused on the idea that shareholders, private owners, should be the ones to profit from business. So that was one important trend. 
I think the other really important trend was the development in the mid-century, the mid-20th century, of this idea of the family wage, right? This was the idea that what was important for businesses was to pay men enough money, this family wage, so that men could take care of their families, that women would not have to work outside the home, and that by extension, the private nuclear family would take care of children and the elderly. Um, this was the idea that, again, care was a private domain and only some of that care, namely the, the I guess, the care that the male breadwinner would, you know, provide, was actually salaried. Everything else was... Um, was outside of the traditional labor market. And this really downplayed the idea even of charity as a way, and I use that term with like air quotes, but even of charity as, you know, taking care of children or the elderly or people who are impoverished um, and definitely made not just secondary, but tertiary, the idea that the state or the government would do any of, do any kind of caregiving. This definitely went against the sort of Franklin Roosevelt idea of social security. This definitely went against the idea um, of any kind of state responsibility for the welfare of people who were either too young or too old or, you know, too ill to care for themselves. And it was very much a privatization of responsibility for people who could not otherwise earn a living in the labor market. So putting stock in privatization above all else meant that caregiving became externalized beyond the purview of government. Caregiving was a domain of private families. And then, as families changed and the economy changed and more women entered the labor force, it became the domain of private markets. Felicia and her colleagues argue that even on its own terms, neoliberalism has failed. With lower growth and more inequality since 1980 than in the 40 years prior. But when it comes to care in this country, it's been a disaster. The pandemic has led to and or made more apparent what was already a crisis of care for families that have school-age children and kids under the age of five. But the idea that privatization was actually going to lead to a society where we would have enough wealth and enough institutional systems, right, to, to care for people who... Um, who need care, the idea that the private sector was going to lead to that, that is just completely false. The system is totally broken. Caregiving today is really expensive, especially relative to caregiving systems in other countries, other wealthy countries. And it's also not properly provided, right? There, care is really expensive and there isn't enough of that. That doesn't make any sense in a market, by the way. If something's really expensive, we should, you know, that, that price should lead to more of it. But we don't have that. The system is totally broken and it's in, it's in fact broken because it just doesn't fit uh, the neoliberal model that we have. 
it's clear that waiting for the private sector to magically handle every problem doesn't work. Take climate change as another example. Privatizing care may have worked in an era when the nuclear family was ascendant, an era when many white men, in particular, were paid a wage that could support a whole family. But as Stephanie Kuhns told us a few episodes back, this illusory family ideal didn't work that well then. And in the decades since, with declining wages and elevated parenting expectations, it's been kind of impossible. Last year, New York Times columnist Jen Senior wrote, we're living with the household requirements of the 1960s, but the work and parenting expectations of 2020, which is a rotten combination, especially for mothers. For decades, the incredible stress caregivers, and especially mothers, experience from mounting economic and time pressures has been framed as their individual problems to solve. And what's been offered up as solutions? Life hacks for greater efficiency, self-care in the form of consumption. The solution to capitalism run amok, we're told, is more capitalism. But Felicia sees a different path forward. It requires new policy, like the Build Back Better Act but it also requires a new paradigm. And so what you've seen amongst academic economists over the last 10 years, and what you've seen in mainstream American politics over the last, I would say, four or five years, is a repudiation of this idea that privatization is going to lead to you know, greater good for all. And instead, you're seeing lots of new proposals. You're seeing proposals for the public funding of new sectors of the economy, including new green manufacturing and also new care sectors, you know, in what the Biden administration calls the Build Back Better agenda. You actually see more money going into a child care system and you see more money going into a system that would pay um, home care workers for elderly people higher wages and provide more consistent provision of that care uh, across the board. I do think that the fact that these new ideas are now mainstream is really, really, really important. I cannot stress that enough. I don't think, Julie, that two or three years ago, you and I would have ever thought that a president who kind of ran as a moderate, right, bringing all of America together in a kind of bipartisan, you know, kumbaya, we never thought that central to his plans was going to be the caregiving sector. And I think that is now central to his plans. And that is because the economists and many of the economic advisors um, who have been trying to craft a new set of policies understand that neoliberal privatization is not the way forward. So what will it take to get there? Felicia predicts that we'll need changes in two areas, social values and political power. I think the values answer is that you actually have to believe that a new kind of freedom, a new definition of freedom that says that 
the highest and best freedom is not freedom to contract in the market and or freedom to like protect your private property with you know every tool at your disposal. That is not the sum total of what human life can be or aspire to or what human freedom can be or aspire to. So I think you really do need to think about, this sounds kind of corny and maybe slightly utopian, but a new vision for human happiness and human freedom that goes way beyond um, your right to contract. So I think that's, that's the first thing I would say. I actually think it's possible for what it's worth. Like if you ask most people now, especially after having lived through what's coming up on, what will be coming up on like two years of a pandemic, you know, what are the things that matter most to you? I think they would say things that are much more um, social and much more um, about a kind of thriving and meaning that is not about work and is not about a paycheck and is not about market contract. So I actually think that this new vision of freedom is possible, but we have to have kind of the courage to say it out loud. The problem is that there's something blocking these changes. Popular opinion does not always become law. I think we can't simply believe that new policy answers um, are going to make all the difference. Like, you know, in my day job, I think all about the kinds of policy answers that could get us to a healthier and more thriving economy. But I actually don't think any of those policy answers are worth much at all on the current playing field. Because the current political playing field has a very few people, whether it's the MAGA coalition or white minoritarian rule or whatever you want to call it, controlling the voting rules under which any of this legislation, any of these policy ideas gets passed. And so I think what we have to do in order to get to a place that 70% of Americans would actually like higher wages for low-wage workers, would like to see a public caregiving system, uh, would like to see um, a public health system. There, 70% of Americans want all of these things that we now dub progressive, but they're not just progressive. They are actually popular. But the reason that we don't have them is not because we don't have the policy ideas. It's because we have a political system that's being strangled by both a set of congressional voting rules and by the structure of the Electoral College and, frankly, by a a jurisprudence and a court system that all of which enforce, I would say, or lean towards non-democratic policy outcomes or political outcomes. And so I think we have to actually be willing to play political hardball to change the playing field. And then we can have these policy debates about childcare. Then we can talk about whether it's most important to have, you know, subsidies to American families for childcare or having an actually a publicly provided childcare system that looks a lot like our K-12 education system. I'm happy to have that debate, but I'd much rather have it on a playing field that's a lot more fair. 
So our caregiving crisis is not just merely an economic crisis. It's also a democratic crisis, a crisis of democracy. I absolutely think that's true. Our caregiving crisis is a crisis of democracy. We're not getting what we, the people, want. Next time on White Picket Fence. And so I think implicit in the, and perhaps explicit in the women's movement of the 1960s, particularly for those people who were fighting for employment opportunities outside the home, was the denigration of housework. White Picket Fence is a Wonder Media Network production. Our producers are Maddie Foley, Edie Allard, and Taylor Williamson. Executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Special thanks to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Shared Ascent Fund for their generous support for this season. We want to hear about your caregiving experiences, especially during the pandemic. Just call 212-655-5048 and leave us a voicemail with your story. We might just play it on the show. That's 212-655-5048.